The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. Maybe you can think back to a time when your sports team, maybe your favorite sports team or one of your sports teams, won the championship. I was thinking back to the first time that I ever felt the exhilaration of one of my sports teams winning the championship. It was uh, 1997, and I was staying up late watching the World Series. It was game seven, bottom of the ninth, and what happened next for the then Florida Marlins? Uh, What happened next changed history, and you know what's funny? Is I can't remember Uh, really anything about the entire season. Like at this point, like I don't remember anything about the season. I just remember one moment, but I can still to this day see that moment so clearly in my mind like it was like video recorded. It's bottom of the ninth, game seven, and this happened. Check it out. The 0-1 pitch. A liner of Nagy's glove into center field. Gets me excited just watching it again. I mean, like, I'm like, I'm pumped up, okay? All right, does anyone remember? I just, by a show of hands here at Cooper City, if you actually remember witnessing that live, can I just see, can I just see a show of hands? I mean, yeah, I met a bunch of us. Like, that was an incredible moment, and uh, I remember, like, it was late at night, I was the only one still awake in the house, and I'm jumping up and down, I'm screaming silently, but there's no one else to celebrate with, okay? I'm high-fiving myself, I don't know what to do, okay? And I remember just just staring at the screen for, like, I mean, like, 45 minutes, the game's over, but I'm just, the entire stadium just went bananas. I mean, it was pandemonium, okay? Of course, you know, that Queen's We Are the Champion comes blasting out. The song at that point was like 20 years old, okay? We still play that today, you know, when someone wins a championship. And it doesn't matter if you like the band Queen or you even like music or can sing, everyone was shouting that song, we, I mean, we are the champions. I mean, people are hugging each other. They're high-fiving. It was an incredible moment. I could barely sleep that night. It was the first thing I thought of the next morning. I mean, when your team wins the championship, I mean, that, there is just a thrill, and it doesn't always happen. Um, it doesn't happen every season for every team, but when those times happen in your lifetime, when your team wins the championship, there is an exhilaration that is hard to describe, and that's happened uh, a few other times since then in my, la- my lifetime. The Marlins won again. Heat won a few times, and then, you know, this upcoming February when the Dolphins win the Super Bowl, we'll experience it again, okay? So... Last Sunday, if we learned anything from last Sunday, you know, as the Dolphins are going to the Super Bowl, it's our year. Okay, so anyway, when your team wins, there is such an exhilaration, okay? And, and I was just pausing to think about that dynamic for a second. Like, why, like, when my team won, like, why did I go out of my mind? Like, why did I have, like, that level of emotion? And especially if it's, like, a professional team that you follow. Like, if it's your college 
like you actually go to that school or if it's your high school, like you are a part of that school. But like what makes me sing, we are the champions when the Marlins won the World Series? Like they don't know who I am. The Marlins don't know my name, like they don't know me, okay? In fact, like to be a part of the we, like I've actually paid money to them to be a part of the we, okay? Like I've bought their merchandise, I've gone to their games, and they love that I feel like a we because like I've paid to feel like the we. But what actually changed in my life that warranted so much emotion when they won? Like I was thinking, like, what actually changed? First of all, I didn't do anything, okay, to be a part of that, but watch. But what changed in my life after that? Well, for a period of months, I could feel like a champion. My friends who liked other teams, I could be kind of snotty to them, okay? And that feels good, okay, so that's something. Um, I, I can tune into a game and want to see a particular team win, and they did that a lot till they won the championship, and that's fun when I watch those games. But just thinking about like what that actually accomplished for my life, it seems a little disproportionate to the amount of emotion and elation I felt when my team were, won the championship. And this is not a modern phenomenon. Having a champion that wins on your behalf is as ancient as it comes. It's a common dynamic in humanity. And I actually think that's an important dynamic for us to pause and consider. Because here's the thing, most of us live trying to champion our own lives and be the champion that wins whatever that win is for our lives. But the sooner we stop trying to champion our own lives, the sooner and the better we can actually truly live. I wanna show you this dynamic because this is not just a concept. I mean, this plays out in very tangible real life. You have a champion for your life and it's not you. I want you to check out um, what the last book in the Bible says, Revelation chapter five. Would you just take a moment and open in your Bible, your Bible app to Revelation chapter five? In our series, we're following the theme of the lion. And we started in Genesis, talked about a lion. We went to um, Daniel, talks about lions. And there's a theme that runs through. We're going all the way to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 5. Let me just read the first couple of verses and then we'll get, our, get the context here of, of what we're reading. This is Revelation 5, 1 and 2. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Now pause with me for a second. The scene is someone's describing what they see. It's a throne room. 
There is a king on the throne. He is holding a scroll. It has seven seals, and they're wondering who is worthy to open up that scroll. Now, what is this scene? Let me just give you the context of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a book of prophecy. It's a, that's a genre in the Bible. It's um, usually a little bit more of a foreign genre for us. It is a lot of imagery. It is um, a, a, a talking about very lofty concepts, but it is from God. And the way that we interpret that imagery is we use other scriptures to interpret what that imagery means. So it can be some of the most challenging parts of the Bible to understand and interpret, but the payoff for the hard work and the study is always well worth it. This is how the Bible ends with this book of prophecy. The person who's writing it is a guy by the name of John. This is the famous John. He wrote the gospel, the biography of Jesus, that's called John. He wrote a few letters in the New Testament, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he writes this book, Revelation. This John was one of the disciples of Jesus. He was part of the inner circle of Jesus, Peter, James, and John. He was one of Jesus' closest disciples. So to John, Jesus was his teacher, his mentor, his savior, his king, his closest friend. Jesus is the center of his, of his life. And at the end, towards the end of his life, God gives him a vision and he writes it down in the book of Revelation. In the previous chapter, chapter four, the vision opens up and the throne room he's standing in, he's standing in the throne room of heaven. John is standing in heaven and he's looking around and he describes several things. Almighty God is seated on the throne. There are 24 other thrones with the, who he, the group he calls the elders. And then there's four beasts of sorts. He calls four living creatures. And we're going to encounter them here in just a minute. We'll talk about that in a second. And in this scene, as chapter five opens, an angel calls out, who can open the scroll? He's holding a scroll there in his hand. God is in his right hand, the right hand of power, of favor. He's holding a scroll. And this is what they would have written things down on. A scroll at that time period was made from animal skin, from leather, they would write on it, they would roll it up, and they would seal it, typically with six seals. This one's sealed with seven seals holding it shut, and he's holding the scroll in his right hand. Now, what is the scroll that God Almighty is holding in his right hand? It is his plan to redeem all of history. It's God's plan for how the whole story of the universe would end. What he's written. How he wants to redeem everything. And he's holding it in his right hand. But someone, God is holding it out for someone to rise up, take the scroll, and be worthy to break the seven seals and to open it up so that the plan can be enacted. So who's worthy? Who is going to rise up and take the scroll? Let's continue with verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. 
and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. The call goes out. We find out that there's God on the throne. There's 24 elders. There's four living creatures. And there are thousands upon thousands, millions of angels all around. And one of them says, who is worthy to open the scroll? Silence. No one. No one moves. No one on earth. No one in heaven. Above, below, all around. Nobody moves. Just silence. John starts to get choked up. He starts, tears start rolling down his face. He tries to muffle his, his weeping. He starts hyperventilating. He starts crying. He starts I mean, having a, just breaking down. He starts weeping and wailing. I mean, he's wailing. He's weeping loudly. The one noise in all of heaven as John is seeing this vision standing next to this angel is absolute loud wailing and weeping that no one can possibly take the scroll and open. Now, why does John have the agony of defeat? Why does he in that moment wail? Because think about it. If no one can open up the scroll to redeem history, here's what that means. All the universe, all humanity, all of planet Earth, every individual story and our collective story dissolves into random, meaningless chaos. That means there's no grand design. There's no ultimate purpose. There's no way to redeem the stories that are broken and make them whole again. That means there's no guarantee of justice. There's no guarantee of a happy ending. That means everyone on earth, you and me, our lives, with the difficulties and, and the victories, with the losses and the injustices and the hopes and dreams, all of it is just dissolved into random meaninglessness. And there's nothing anyone can do about it. That means any time you've ever watched a movie with a happy ending and it gets you somewhere emotionally deep inside because it's triggering your longing and your hope for a happy ending in your own life, it means that happy endings are a fairy tale, a myth. They're unicorns, something you hope might be true. But in the end, it's just a vapor. All of this life, all of the effort and all of the trying and all of the suffering, all of it is meaningless. It is the ultimate loss and defeat of the universe. And so John wails. As if every moment of pain and disappointment, every injustice, every evil ever perpetrated will now go unanswered and unresolved and unredeemed. If no one opens that scroll, it's the ultimate loss. But then there's verse five. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, look, the lion 
of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Church, is it good news that there's a line of Judah that can take the scroll? Is that good news, church? An elder says, one of the elders on the throne stand up and said, John, weep no more. Behold, stop what you're doing and look. He says, there's a lion. There's a conqueror. It's the lion from the tribe of Judah. It's the root of David. It's both the fountainhead of the Davidic dynasty and also the descendant of the Davidic dynasty. It is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Look, it's the lion of Judah. He has conquered and he is worthy to take the scroll. And John turns to look and he's expecting to see this regal, monstrous, gigantic lion in all of its royal glory. And what does he see? A lamb. It says, a lamb standing, having been slain. Not standing, but almost slain. Standing, having been definitively, it's already happened, slain. How can you be slain? How could you be killed and then standing? There is no way except one way is if you've been killed, then you defeated death, rose again from the dead, and was standing there having defeated death through the resurrection. The lion of Judah, the conqueror, is among the foes he conquered was death itself, the great foe of all the living. The lion can take the scroll, he's worthy. It's through being the lamb going gently, quietly, gracefully, obediently to death as the sacrificial lamb. And that's exactly what Jesus did. It is through his death on the cross that they wounded him, right? What did they do to Jesus? They lashed his back. They put a crown of thorns, mocking him as the king. They nailed each hand to a cross. They nailed both feet to the cross, and he, as he hanged there on the cross, humiliated as a spectacle for all to mock as they walked by, he died taking all of our sin on himself and to make sure that they had successfully killed the author of all life, they took a spear and stabbed him in the side and blood flowed and water flowed and they said, he's dead. And they put him in the tomb and they rolled a stone over the mouth of the tomb. And on the third day, the stone was rolled away and Jesus Christ arose and stood there with the marks of one who had been slain, but he had risen from the dead and defeated death itself. Can we celebrate what Jesus did? And everyone in heaven watched in hushed hope and anticipation 
that the mighty lion approaches with boldness the throne of the Almighty, and he takes the scroll out of the hands of Almighty God because he is the true conqueror. He is one. Now what happens when he takes the scroll? I want you to see what happens in verse 8. Here's what it says. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. When the lion takes the scroll, the lamb standing as though he'd been slain, even though he'd been slain, they, he takes the, the champion, the victor, he takes the scroll, and at that moment, the four living creatures fall down. The 24 elders fa fall down and say, worthy are you, are you, you're the only one worthy that can enact the plan that God has to ransom for himself, to pay, to, re to receive back a people from it for himself and make them a kingdom, a kingdom of priests, a kingdom that will be the mediators between God and all of creation, every one of them priests, a kingdom who will rule with Jesus, who will rule with God, and they fell down singing a new song. Now, I want to pause for a second. Let's talk about these 24 elders. Who are these 24 elders that fall down at this point? Well, what we see God doing in the, both the Old and the New Testament is the government that he sets, the structure he sets for God's people is in 12s. So he has 12 tribes of, of Israel, and each there's a, a patriarch over those tribes, and his people are divided into 12 tribes. In the New Testament, there are 12 apostles. And so these two groups of 12, both from the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Testament and New Testament, those looking towards Jesus, those looking back to Jesus, have both been ruled by 12s. And so those seated on the throne are representative of all of God's people. And so it's symbolically 24, but they represent all of God's people. And in chapter 4, they're described as all sitting on thrones, ruling with God in the center. And they're wearing robes of white, and they have crowns on their head. And at that point, those symbolically, all the people of God fall down and sing. There's four living creatures, and, and it's really bizarre how they're described in the previous chapter, chapter four. There's four of them. One is described as like a lion. One is described as like an ox. One is described as like a human. And one is described as like an eagle. And yet they have six wings, each of them. And it says they're, they're covered with eyes all around, which gives it kind of an unimaginable appearance. But the eyes are symbolizing they have knowledge of everything that's happening. Nothing gets past them. And if you think about it, those four creatures are, are all the pinnacle of their types. You have the lion, 
kind of the, the king, he rules over the beasts. You have the ox known for his strength. You've got humans known for our, our ability to reason and communicate and be creative. You've got the eagle who soars high above and all of them have, e have wings so that they can reign on, on earth and in heaven. Basically, all of the created order, all of creation, the pinnacle of creation being those that are living. Those that are, while God made meteors and planets and stars, it's those that can breathe in and out and respond and, and uh, reproduce. That's the pinnacle of his creation. These four living creatures represent all of the creatures of the universe in these composite creatures. Kind of the pinnacle there. And so here's what you see. All of creation falling down and worshiping God. And at this moment, pandemonium breaks out in heaven. I want you to see how this chapter ends. Let me read you these last few verses. We're going to pick it up in verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. There was one victor for all of creation and all who are watching his victory broke out in pandemonium. A thrill, an exhilaration, the likes of which no stadium ever in the history of man could possibly comprehend because he has won for all time. And they sang and they worshiped, and they shouted, and they cheered, and they did one thing in particular that's not something, it's, it's their worship and their praise and their awe was to a degree unlike any championship moment ever. Because they didn't just jump up and hug each other and dance and sing. They fell down in awe. See, here's what this passage is describing when we see all of creation falling down before God, before the Lamb, before Jesus. It's very simple, very simply. What is this passage saying? It's all about him. Everything. It's all about him. The story of the universe. The story that's playing out now. The story of your life. It's all about him, not about anyone else. It's about him, and that is really good news. The, that, that means that the Bible, that means God is teaching us that it's all about him. God is teaching us it's all about God. And you say, man, isn't that a little bit offensive and egotistical of God to say, hey, humanity, you need to know it's about me? 
Doesn't that feel a little offensive? Well, the reason that feels offensive is every other time we encounter that concept of someone making it about themselves, it's another human. And by saying, hey, it's about me, they're putting themselves in the place of God. But if there actually is a God, then it truly is all about him. There can't be someone else to say, for God to say if the, with this false humility, well, guys, look, it's not all about me. For God to say that, he would be speaking something that's not true, and God cannot lie. It's against his nature. For God to say, no, it's about me, it's, about, it's not about me, it's about someone else, that would be God putting something above himself, which he cannot do. That's idolatry. It has to be all about God. That is the right order of the universe. It is all about God, and that's really, really good news. Why? Because otherwise, we walk through life thinking it's all about our, us, it's all about ourselves, it's all about our dreams, it's all about actualizing ourselves to fulfill our fullest potential, it's all about ourselves, and that is an exhausting way to live, and we never have victory. We're trying to champion our own lives, and when it's all about ourselves, we can, it always just slips through our fingers and we're just perpetually exhausting ourselves with these questions of, am I good enough? Am I successful enough? Am I far enough along? Am I beautiful enough? A am I attractive enough? Am I accepted enough? A am I friendly enough? A am, I, am I this? Am I that? Am I this? Am I that? And we're constantly wondering if we're enough because we think it's all about us. But when it's all about him, all of those exhausting questions dissolve. And here's the thing, here's the unimaginable thing that will make us fall down in worship before the Lamb. It's that the God of the universe, almighty God of glory, that it's all about him, loved us so much that he came down to earth and sacrificed himself for us. How could he do that? That's the kind of God that we serve. Listen, to follow Jesus, to be his disciple, to be his mathetes, it's the ancient word for disciple. Being a mathetes is an all or nothing situation. Being a mathetes is we are realizing we don't achieve salvation, we've been rescued by the blood of the lamb. He rescued us. But what this is teaching us is as a mathetes, God perpetually strikes us with awe at his majesty and his glory and his holiness. A mathetes is awestruck. And that just perpetually flows out of our lives. And listen, church, that is not compatible with the way the world thinks. Don't misunderstand. You can't just attach that to an existing thought process from the world because what the Bible says is if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. In other words, let's make it more explicit for our generation. You and I have to give up on our dreams because we are so enamored by the majesty of God and floored with the concept that the God of the universe 
might have a plan for our lives that is exceedingly better than anything we could dream up. See, every follower of Christ, every mathetes, is awestruck by God. It's all about him, and that's really, really good news. Man, this works itself out right in the everyday parts of our life. I want you to think about this with me. If it's all about him, then here's what you have. You finally have the rightful king on the throne. Because think about it. If you're on the throne of your own life, if your life is about you, how can you possibly have a successful relationship when it's all about you? You know you can't. How can you have a successful marriage? How can you have successful friendships? If you're on the throne, if it's all about you, how can you have a successful marriage, successful friendships? How can you be a successful professional if you're using every day to try and make it all about you? How can you be a successful parent when it's all about you? You know that that is a recipe for deep brokenness. And we're like, you're right, I gotta put others first. But no, it's putting God on the throne, not someone else on the throne, because if you put a spouse on the throne, if you put a friend on the throne, if you put your boss or a leader on the throne, if you put your own children on the throne of your life, you will suffocate them with your expectations of them fulfilling what only God can fulfill in your life. Parents, if you put your children on the throne, you will be looking to them to redeem something about your life that's broken, and they are not redeemers. If you're looking for your spouse to redeem something about your inner brokenness in your heart, they will never be able to do that for you because they're not the true lover of your soul. Only Jesus is. And when we put someone else on the throne, it is a recipe for either choking the relationship with our expectations, manipulating each other because we've overemphasized the relationship, or dissolving into the utter bitterness that's left behind when those relationships have not met my expectations. Only God can be on the throne. See, when it's all about God, you have the rightful king on the throne. When it's all about God, you have an immovable anchor as your hope. That's the number two thing you have. You have the immovable anchor for your hope. In our world, our world is set up to try and hijack the hope in your life. The voices that, that are crowding in in our world is swirling and perpetuating fear, trying to steal your hope, trying to give you fear about what's going to happen in politics, fear what's going to happen in the economy, fear what's, what's going to happen to the environment, fear what's, what's going to happen with freedoms, fear what's going to happen with oppression, fear what's going to happen with, with your health. It's all swirling to stir up fear, but when you realize that your entire life is in the hands of almighty God and it's all about him and he is one, then you have an immovable anchor because your hope is a living being. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus is your hope. Number three, when, you have, when it's all about God, when it's all about him and not about us, you have a perfect shepherd to guide your life. You are not the shepherd. You don't need to be the shepherd of your life trying to figure it all out with the, your shifting, uh, fickle, back and forth, tossed around view of your life. Maybe I should do this. I'm gonna try and do this. Well, I'm gonna live this way. No, we surrender and say, clearly, 
I am awed by your wisdom and power and majesty, so I surrender my life. I surrender my dream. I surrender my career. I surrender my sexuality. I surrender my finances. I surrender my time. I, you guide me, shepherd. You walk me through this path because I know that you are going to redeem my life for good. That moment in heaven, this is what heaven's going to be like, Christian. The exhilaration, if you've ever had a chance to watch your team win a championship, that exhilaration is but a hint of what it will be like to live in the reality that your champion, Jesus Christ, won the ultimate victory. And it doesn't just matter for a few months. It matters for all time. It doesn't just play out for a few days. It plays out every single day. And you are not some distant person that's tried to pay to be a part of the community that won. No, he paid for you and he knows your name. Here's what it says in the book of Revelation about your name. It's in the chapter three, verse five. The one who conquers, that's the victor, the champion. The one who conquers will, will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Your name is known by almighty God. It is written down in the book. He knows who you are. What's the book? Well, it's the same word used a couple chapters later for scroll. Your name is written in the scroll. Where is your name written? What is that scroll? What is that scroll? The scroll are the words of God and his redemption written on skin. It's written on flesh. In John's other book, he said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What's that scroll? What's God's plan for redemption? It's a who. And just like that scroll had seven seals that had to be broken, Jesus had seven wounds that would be broken, his body would be broken with. He'd have two nail piercings on his feet, two nail piercings on his hand. He'd have a crown of thorns. He'd have a lacerated back. He'd have a piercing in his side. He would have seven wounds of brokenness on his own body. And just now later in Revelation, uh, John is told to taste the scroll. We are told to taste of the body and blood of Christ and experience the redemption through communion. What is the scroll? Who is the plan of redemption? It is Jesus where are you written? You are written on Jesus. Isaiah says it like this. Behold, this is God speaking. I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. He knows your name. You are written on him. That's your champion. He made a victory for you and it plays out every single day. Church, this is why we worship. This is why we walk every day and whether we eat or we drink, whether we play or we work, whether leisure, whether chores, Every moment of the day, we do it for his glory. Church, 
This is why when we gather together, we sing. Man, people, when a, when a champion wins, they sing, whether they know the song, like the song, like their voice or not, they sing because their champion won a victory. That's why some of you, when you come in, you, you look around, you see people, their hands raised in the air. You're people singing with all their heart. You see tears going down their face. You see hands being clapped, cheers coming out when we gather to sing. Why? Because we're remembering the champion has won. And that plays out in our life every single day. That's why we come together and we sing and dance and worship. And we wait for the day when we will celebrate his victory for the rest of eternity. But maybe today you need to make Jesus your champion. Stop trying to champion your life. Be awestruck. Fall before Jesus. Humble yourself before Jesus. And make Jesus your champion. Can we pray together? Would you bow your head and close your eyes? If today you want to put your faith in Jesus, what you're saying is you're no longer believing you can save your own life. You can't save your life here and now, and you can't save it for eternity, but only Jesus can save you. And I want to invite you to make Jesus your champion. Find salvation today. And if that's you, let me lead you in a quiet prayer. Whether you're sitting there in Cooper City or watching at home or you're here in this room, just silently make this your prayer to Jesus. He hears you just right there. Say, Jesus, I make you my savior, my champion. You are the victor over sin, over death, for all the universe. I surrender to you. You are on the throne. You are my hope. You are my guide. In Jesus' name, amen. If just then you found salvation, if you made Jesus your champion, you made him your savior, your Lord, I want to invite you to go to cityrev.org faith. Just go ahead and take a second, grab your phone, go to cityrev.org faith. We're going to mail you a Bible if you're here in this room. You can just go to guest services in that front lobby. We have a Bible we're going to give you today. Just go there with your Get Connected card and just say, hey, I put my faith in Jesus. We would love to celebrate that with you. Church, we are going to close in a time of worship. But as we sing... Can we sing like we understand what this passage is trying to say or we grasp a fraction of it? That our Jesus, our lion, the lamb, has had victory over sin and death. That victory applies to our lives. We're not just witnesses of it. It applies to our lives every day and will matter for all eternity. Would you stand with me? Let's celebrate that together. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.